0: Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Cara and Antonia to talk about how we can produce less waste. And from what I know, this relates to a concept called the circular economy, which is one way of producing less waste. But I get the impression from what very little I know about it that it's not a simple thing to do. So to start off with, Kara, given that you know more about this than I do, please, could you give me an example of something in the circular economy?
1: I'm quite passionate about waste and how, about how people kind of dump things behind themselves or about how people use things and for how long they use them. So like how long a product is going to last for a person. The one example which was in the news today was looking at Reading Festival, that there was, I don't know, like thousands and thousands upon thousands of tents left behind. And people just left them for whatever reason. Sometimes it's because it's broken and people buy a tent and it's so cheap that they still don't see the value and bring it home and amending it. Some people buy a tent that's so cheap they just can't be bothered carrying it home to use it again. So it's about how you see the life of a product from a consumer's point of view directly related to how much they value it. If 50 years ago you told somebody you'd buy a tent and use it once, people would just think you were bad because it was not how you invested in things. So to me, that's an example of how people's behavior and how um, their perception of what the value of products are and materials, it really demonstrates something about trying to create less waste. But also then that starts kind of introducing the idea of circular economy, which we'll get on to, but explain a bit more in a minute. Okay,
0: so is the idea that if there are all these tents left on this festival site that someone has to do something with them and they have to make a decision about what that is?
1: Oh yeah, so previously, about 10 years ago I guess, I worked on festivals in lots of different ways and one year I did do litter picking at Glastonbury. If you worked in the crew afterwards, you went around and you had to smash the tents up pretty much as small as you could just to make them small to fit inside skips in the most uh, efficient way and they were taken away. Some festivals allow scout groups to come along and collect the tents, but festivals such as Reading have a reputation for not being overly clean so a lot of the tents are left in really bad condition anyway so you don't typically want to take them home there's sometimes this idea that someone is going to come along and take your tent they're like oh charities will take it but you have to kind of wonder a pop-up tent that's been used once and cost 20 pounds because they produce it as cheap as possible is it going to have a life for somebody else after you trashed it for the weekend you know it's how you respect the use of materials overall But yeah, so now there are some examples that people will come along actually and collect the tents and the material and they make other things with them, such as raincoats or bunting or flags. So you can kind of get some use out of the material again after the person has let it lie in there.
0: Okay, so is that like an example of, um, so it's not repurposing, is it It's turning it into something else? Is that more like sort of a a downcycling or an Uh, upcycling? Is that the wrong?
1: Well, I guess the term you would see on Pinterest is upcycling, but you have to wonder whether it really is. Upcycling implies you're improving the quality of the waste material, right? Surely a tent is not being upcycled if it's made into bunting. Like surely it's more (laughs) valuable as a tent. So I'm not sure really how you would, you would phrase that. Antonia, what do you think? Is it repurposing, I guess? I guess bunting, you
2: can kind of make out sort of almost anything. You can make it out of waste paper and waste plastic, but a tent can't be built out of waste paper and waste plastic. So I think that's downcycling. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because it's lost sort of its its purpose and value as a tent. It's, <laughs> it's, now, it's now hanging as decoration. And I think decoration you can get in a lot of ways, but tent you can't.
0: Oh, interesting. I think we'll probably return to these ideas a bit later on. So I have an example from my garden where all the leaves that fall from the trees and all the grass that we cut is then put into the compost heap and allowed to compost down. And then that goes back onto our vegetable patch so we can get a little bit of food that hasn't had to travel very far. And it's from sort of a system that we can sort of contain as much as possible in that we can manage how that vegetable is grown. I feel like that's an example of recycling because I'm taking stuff from the garden and putting it back into the garden. But is it recycling?
1: I like how you use the word system there. I think systems is the right way to think about this. It depends how you frame what the boundaries are, what you're looking at. So within your garden, it probably is zero waste because you aren't putting it in rubbish bags to be put into the dump. But I'm not sure you would call it recycling necessarily unless you think of like the cycles of nutrients. Recycling would imply that it gets taken away somewhere to be processed in a certain way. So again, I'm not sure how you would define that is it possibly reuse. Plants are quite complicated, right? And
0: they do a whole load of stuff with the uh, the elements, the atoms, the atoms that I love. It's a shame isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess the plants sort of do something. I guess it's kind of why I think of it as a way of recycling. So it's not being taken away and processed, but the plants are doing something to process it or the bacteria in the soil is doing something.
1: That's true. So maybe I think of recycling the definition in terms of um industry. So people who have a, a plant that they've built, uh, not a, a, a granite plant, a plant which is a factory. <laughs> An industrial plant. <laughs> An industrial plant. <laughs> yeah, so I guess this is very into territory, which Antonia loves of um, how we define words differently. <laughs> yeah, and Antonia, you've got a bit of background
0: in the stuff we're talking about. you want to tell us about it? So I, you can tell me I'm wrong because I feel like I'm just rambling.
2: Yeah, I, I guess this gardening example kind of fits in a, in a natural or biological ecosystem. Tangentially heard about, you know, plants being used instead of fossil fuels as a basic chemical building blocks. So instead of using, say, oil and gas to get syngas, which is a common, common use in, in industrial processing of carbon monoxide and hydrogen to produce bigger molecules, Um, You break down oil and gas and they're basically hydrocarbons, which you can also get from nature. And so instead of using a non-renewable source, you can use renewable sources because you can grow plants in a shorter time frame than fossil fuels. Came across that. And then I came across this concept of economy about five years ago. In the context of trying to meet climate change targets, countries like the UK need to use more renewable electricity technologies like wind turbines and solar PV. But then there was the problem of depleting metals because of the metals being used into the technologies that renewably generate electricity for inverted commerce free. But then afterwards, what do you do with the materials? How can you reuse them? Or are they trapped in that, that product that you've made? And actually, it's really hard to recover. So Instead of using fossil fuels to, to generate your energy, you've replaced it with a not, another non-renewable resource like metals.
1: Antonia, I think that is really fascinating. And it connects back to what we were saying before, actually, which is about the value of materials. So it's not just about how you use material in a certain way, but it's how you choose which material. And the example you gave of saying bunting, you could use lots of different things for that. I was actually thinking of fossil fuels and how plastic is like one of the most important things we have in the world, actually. People hate plastic, but in the medical industry, plastic is incredibly important for making clean environments that are going to be save people's lives. And you just connected right back to that and said, we shouldn't be using fossil fuels because obviously plants are better for that in lots of different ways. But actually that's because fossil fuels are quite valuable for other uses. And it's about trying to connect those systems together and think in bigger terms what materials we're using for what.
2: And I think, you know, going back to the example of the garden, it's great that Laura puts the right kind of waste in her compost heap. If you just put a bunch of plastic, that would be less valuable for your your vegetable patch because those materials aren't going to be useful there, but they could be useful elsewhere. I also think of it as sort of like keeping the materials organised. So if you organise your organic waste and keep your organic waste in organic systems and then keep your metallurgical waste all together, you can get more value out of it.
1: I like that. Organised
2: materials. Yeah, so tidy your room. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're taking me back down the route of uh, like self-assembling molecules and things. Sorry, everything I think about is in terms of atoms. And it <laughs> doesn't connect very well whether you talk sort of engineering scale of things. I mean I guess we're talking around this a little bit and uh, one of the things I wonder about is the practicality of turning waste into something useful I mean can a resource be infinitely useful for example
2: I mean if you're talking to my mum she'd probably be like yes absolutely <laughs> she keeps absolutely everything um she finds really new ways of of using things like you know you know file holders she she'd cut up cereal boxes she'd cut them diagonally and then they they hold a4 paper and then
1: boom, file organizing. That's a great um, idea, actually. And so actually, to say, but people don't throw things away. I, had, I was thinking earlier today, I was laughing that as a kid, I, I hated throwing stuff away and I hated throwing away toilet roll tubes. I don't know why. I was always just like, they must be useful for something. And oh my God, Laura, you'll appreciate this. I've now started composting in my allotment and it is giving me so much joy that I don't throw away toilet roll tubes. I now I use them in my compost heap. <laughs> it makes <laughs> me feel so satisfied that I knew they had a purpose. I think toilet rules are maybe a bit, um, something a bit too simple to talk about. Let's talk about something a bit more interesting. Actually, I think it's interesting you said, can a resource be infinitely useful? That's a big question. that people are trying to answer. But I think actually what we can maybe do for one example is take an take a item from the clothing industry and we're going to talk about the life of this product that goes the whole way from the materials it was at the beginning the whole way through to when it becomes waste at the end. That actually typically is called cradle to grave. So whenever it's born and wherever it when it dies, but actually, what we want to start talking about is going from cradle to cradle. So, how do we get something which is reborn, essentially, so we can use that material again and again and again? So, yeah, Antonio, have you have you an idea you think we can talk about?
2: Yeah, um, an idea I I had for for this episode was to talk about a jumper. I've uh, been looking for jumpers, and there's a lot of materials they've made out of, and also there's a lot of things I want out of my jumper. I want I want a jumper that doesn't bobble. I want a jumper that looks nice jumper that's warm that also fits what do I do once I don't want it that's what I think about but if we just start from the beginning let's start from from before before I get get the jumper and we go through the product life stages we'll sort of simplify them into three.
0: Some of the criteria you mentioned about something lasting for as long as possible and I think it's key for a jumper to be warm because that's why you put that extra layer on right they're things that I look for in a jumper as well. Um, And I really hate throwing things away. So I I think I would want a jumper that would last a long time. So I guess I have to think about the fibres that it's made from. For example, when I work um, in an outdoor shop selling hiking socks, you told people to look for a certain amount of, I think it was nylon or acrylic that was in there because it's a hard-wearing fibre. So it will last longer than some of the other fibres. And you also want a lot of wool in there because it will keep you warm and keep you warm when it's a little bit damp as well. So I guess I'd be looking at what the jumper is made from and then thinking about has it been constructed in a way, because I do a little bit of sewing, has it been constructed in a way that I think will last? Is that something that is thought about even before it gets onto the shelf in the manufacturing process?
2: I'm not a fabric designer or or anything, but I always hope that people do. uh, Because, you know, the amount of times you go to a shop and they're just different sizes, even though they're all size 10. So I always hope that there is design put into this. but I'm not sure I do hold up that much hope not to be that negative.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well I would say I'm as cynical as Antonia. I think a lot of people don't think about this. I think what they factor in is how to make things as cheaply as possible. I think that becomes the biggest factor for a lot of brands, but you have to appreciate then there's also actually well, we're all alumni of um, University of Manchester and the fashion school actually sits within the materials school. Is it the material school? It's in the engineering school anyway, because the material scientists sit alongside the fashion designers. There is a whole academic field that goes into the science behind what clothes are made of. And that's like you said, Laura, about how giving advice of what material you want for different uses, really. And actually, sometimes that's why people will say in a really basic way, you know, that's why you want to buy cotton, because cotton's really good for different temperatures. But also sometimes you want to buy things which are made of like something which is really hard wearing, like tweed. But then you get into a bit more detail with that. Hang on a second, because tweed is a it's a particular type of weave, right? Where, so it could be made from cotton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes it's materials and sometimes it's in production. So
0: it's about the way those fibers are woven together. I like think denim is actually cotton. I think oh, it might be a twill, but it's quite similar
1: to tweed. Yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. So it's, it's materials and then it's production methods. A lot of people think that handmade is always better, but actually sometimes you get the strongest spawns with a, a machine, right? I can imagine so. I guess it depends on how quickly the fibers can be put together and how securely as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a long answer to say. I think things you talked about can be considered in the design of things and how they're manufactured. It doesn't necessarily mean that they always are.
0: I think we're all sort of on the same page and that we like something that will last for a long time and uh, will look good for a while. But do you think because what's in fashion one month might not be in fashion the next, that things are made knowing that they won't be around a long time, so they don't necessarily have to last?
2: Yeah, I think that does play a part. It's like the festival tent because people know that they that it's it's not single use quite as bad, but just you know some clothes you just know are not going to be trendy or or you're not sure how long the trend will last. I mean, do, do you remember the time when ponchos were really popular?
1: <laughs> oh,
2: passed me by that one, obviously. When was that? When was that? Oh, <laughs> god, like 10, 15 years ago, I want to say. And, oh, okay. and they, they were really, they went like that, obviously. <laughs> you missed it completely. But then, you know, if you, if you are buying something that is on a trend, then you might not think necessarily about, Wearing it for 10 years because it'll probably be out of date. It makes me think back to um the episode where Anika talked about fashion. It's planned obsolescence where you don't need it to be that long. So you design it for that sort of short lifespan and then you can make it cheaper from a consumer point of view. You always think, ah, that's fine. If I don't wear it, I'll give it to a charity shop. And the charity shop will, <laughs> will find a use for it uh, have you worked in a charity shop or do you have something to say about this Cara
1: oh uh <laughs> I have something to say about it I have something to say about everything yeah I actually read a report yesterday I think just again talking about how people have this idea that disposable fashion essentially or fast fashion which alludes to the fact that people don't hold as much value against their their items anymore especially if they've only paid a quid for a dress So they think it can go to somebody else at a charity shop. And there's just so many other factors about why that's so wrong. Like, does someone else even want to buy it? Is it good enough quality to pass on to somebody else? Do the charity shop need it? And then you end up actually in this messy territory that there's no value to resell it in the UK. So they package up all these clothes and they send them to other countries, which messes up markets in other countries. And it's just this whole thing that people just don't look beyond like their own kind of like use of something to understand where it's come from or where it's going to go to next. And they just think like, ah, oh, we can recycle everything but because they've, they've been kind of lied to essentially. This is where a lot of it comes into so, like it is economics. And that's why it's a lot to do with psychology and marketing. And a lot of the science is twisted in such a way to tell people that like, you know, oh, it's OK, you can buy this thing for really cheap because actually you can recycle it. And then somebody else uses it. so You shouldn't feel guilty. And it's greenwashing, essentially, I guess, in some way or another. Ow. That's my rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I have a lot to say about this.
2: <laughs> I think that's something that that gets missed by a lot of people about recycling is it's an industrial process in some sort of way or a logistical process. And so there's economy to it you can't recycle something infinitely simply because the value goes down and also you have to apply energy. So, you know, guess it, sorting all these clothes into whether it's wearable and resellable or, you know, putting it down to, to fabric recycling, you know, downcycling, it, it costs labor, it costs money and it costs energy. And, and at the end of the day, if it's not much value at the end of it, then why would you bother doing that?
1: And instead, it, it could end up in landfills. I think we've kind of blurred between the first stage of what we're talking about, the, the product lifecycle, which is manufacturing, mm. and the design decisions which are made, as well as the kind of behavior drivers which come from that. And we're now kind of veering into what the use is. When consumers purchase a product, like how they view the value of that and whether they understand what the manufacturing is and how, how long they even plan to hold on to that. And actually, I think in, in contrast to fast fashion and disposing of things, which I think is definitely one thing that a lot of people maybe of our generation would do. But I know that my mum's generation, they don't throw things away that fast. So she's she will actually tell me that I bought something very cheap and she's like, oh, but it'll last you 30 years. And I have to kind of say like, like there's no point in buying stuff every season that you don't really need to then have it all in your wardrobe for another 40 years, if it'll even last that long. So it becomes this really kind of messy kind of, behavior of how you hoard too many products as well as disposing of too many products and it just kind of yeah it gets really really complicated
0: yeah I gotta say I'm definitely guilty of hoarding stuff at the start of lockdown I actually went through my wardrobe and I've done this a few times and tried to work out like if I wore a top every single day like a new top how long would it take me to actually get through my entire wardrobe I think I worked out that I've probably got an outfit. So not a top, but a full outfit for like every single
1: day of the year, just about. Isn't that incredible? And I think it's incredible who like we're having this conversation over people who try to be in, like, are very aware of all our footprint is in the world. And we try to kind of like consume less and we try to maybe not buy as much. And you still just have so much stuff. And it just goes to show that like it sounds like I'm ranting Ten people or are... Being careless making these decisions, but it's just we've kind of had this like economy set up against us that forces us to have so much more stuff than we necessarily need.
0: Yeah. And I got to say, I haven't bought anything new in a fair few years now. I think I bought the odd thing out of a charity shop, but I thought I obviously have more than enough clothing and I don't wear a lot of it all that often. I mean, for the last year, I've just been sitting around the house in the middle of a pandemic. So I haven't like (laughs) gone for a night out or gone to a conference or even gone to the office. Well, something
2: to be said as well that society expects us to wear clean clothes new clothes you have to wear for the right occasion you can't just wear what you wear at home in the office or at a conference and that's why we have so much stuff because we just have so many uses for it or in my case you know I bought a pair of trousers or something and it and it kind of fits but it's not the most comfortable so I tried to find another pair and it again it was like kind of fits kind of doesn't and you kind of think okay maybe it'll work maybe it'll work and now I've just got 10 pairs of trousers which are okay but not great but I don't want to throw them away (laughs) so I just kind of rotate them all to be uncomfortable in a slightly different part of the the trouser area yeah precisely (laughs) just just slightly uncomfortable if I sit down so these trousers I can wear when I'm standing these ones when it's hot these ones when it's cold
1: (laughs) These ones with tights underneath when it's extra cold, you know. I think then, so there's some people who are very extreme, I guess, environmentalists, would you say, are people who are very into sustainability. You always end, almost end up with this like dystopian version of the future where everyone basically walks around wearing the same clothes and everyone just all dresses in white, for example. We all wear the same thing every day. I'm someone who actually does quite like fashion. I do like clothes. I have a real thing about how things feel, material and colours. And there's so much culture that comes behind what our clothes are. So how can you start making like environmental decisions about what people can or can't buy or produce whenever people have so much like emotion attached to what it is that they are wearing? And then this is where it starts becoming very complicated. How do you start telling people who have a traditional method of creating their clothes which maybe have a bad environmental impact? or maybe those traditional methods of making their clothes can't be recycled in an easy way. And that's when it starts getting quite complex. Who's making those decisions top down, as you would in San Antonia, or else bottom up, trying to like, you know, reframe what, what are the drivers behind what we do and why?
0: I feel like you're going down this route of giving people like a clothing budget
1: every year.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or a sort of a one-in-one-out. Once you've reached, you've got your maximum quota of clothing that you're ever allowed. You can't buy something until you get rid of something else. And you have to get rid of it in... A way that is sanctioned somehow. But I think that's probably God, extreme. It
1: just sounds impossible when you say it like that, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find a solution to this is, is difficult.
2: <laughs> I've got an, a polo shirt from a company that I used to work at. They didn't take it off me. And now I don't know what to do. If I put it in charity shop, someone else could pose as that person, that employee, <laughs> which i not sure anyone really cares to. But also,
1: I'm not just going to walk around wearing it. I just can't. If, the, if people don't want to pose, it, is there any value in reselling it? Does anyone actually want to wear the logo of a company which they've never worked for? Do, does anyone want a polo from Travelodge? Let us know. When <laughs> oh, do you
0: could get away with it if you pretend you're an employee at Travelodge?
2: Ooh.
0: <laughs> All that power of a uh, of, uh, Travelodge housekeeper. Uh. Such a glamorous life you led. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things I wonder about when it comes to what I do with my clothing is washing it I I kind of hate washing machines because I like knowing how things work and washing machines have got this myriad of programs none of them explain what they do and why why is one better for cotton at 60 degrees what's the difference between cotton at 40 degrees What, what why is there a cold wash I don't get it everything goes on the same wash cycle in my house and I wonder if that affects how long things last.
2: I think once upon a time when people designed clothing labels, it did have a meaning. You know, they they put on a dot for ironing level. They put on a dot for whether or not you should use fabric and whether you can dry or it should be dry clean only. The amount of times I've actually tried to look up a label and then realize I just need to Google what any of these symbols mean. And then I do what Laura does and just put it all in the same. I think they actually have in the manual, they actually say the different speeds. And I think that will, you know, impact how many fibers get sort of battered around and loosened off your clothes. And that's, you know, a fact that I think, you know, when we were talking about microplastics and some people found facts about the microplastics that come off our clothing and how there aren't filters for that. Um, some people are actually making filters that can be stuck into your washing machine drain. But yeah, definitely. I think spin... Spin speed, I think
0: they call it. And frequency. Frequency is more accurate. But yeah, I think it says speed in the manuals, doesn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that does do something. So yeah. that's why they suggest if you do have delicate clothes, which, you know, again, fashionably... If you have a lot of chiffon and silk Maybe you don't want to uh, use those
1: high spins Because that will just weaken it And shorten the lifespan of your clothing And actually, yeah A good example I think is jeans Jeans traditionally aren't really supposed to wash at all they say it damages the quality of them. Obviously you wash if you spill curry down the front or something, but typically you aren't really supposed to wash a lot of things like that or suits, a lot of kind of like stiffer things you don't really want to wash that often. It now sounds really strange to say you would not wash a pair of trousers that you wear quite often. So like, of course I still do, but I think I wash my jeans a lot less often than my friends do. Um, but then... I tell myself I'm like okay well it's saving the clothes the clothes last longer as well as saving energy as well as saving water as well as saving fabric softener and washing powder so um maybe I smell slightly more but you know it's good for the environment yeah
0: yeah I've got to say I think I wear my jeans until they start to smell probably shouldn't be admitting this in a podcast
1: Levi's give that advice Levi say don't wash your jeans I think just air them out if they start to smell surely that's allowed right well yeah <laughs> maybe just for a reason <laughs> yeah well
2: I think I think if that's if that's the goal you know if the objective is to to have clean clothes so you don't smell in public then there's your measure you know <laughs> that's, that's the tipping but point. I definitely
1: have some friends who would never wear a pair of jeans twice without wash like did wear them once and wash them wow yeah
0: I've been doing all sorts in my garden today in these jeans so <laughs> <guessing> <laughs> <what's
1: wrong. laughs> yeah, exactly I think so then um also talking about fibres though I thought so I know we're talking about use right now but back to manufacture a little bit you just kind of reminded me well I live in Manchester and thinking about all the cotton mills that we have and a lot of people died because they used to work in cotton mills and when they would quit cutting up the fabric so many little pieces of the material would be in the air and they absorb they would breathe in a lot of these cotton materials and it led to lots of cases of lung cancer which we don't have in the UK anymore because we do typically have better employment laws. But like circular economy is typically about the environment and less waste, but you have to consider the human cost in it in some way or another. And it, there is definitely cases in the UK where there has been fast fastened warehouses in the past few years underpaying people. Like they've called it modern slavery. And in other countries, they don't have those health concerns. They don't care about people breathing the stuff in. They probably also don't care that much about the stuff um, washing out into rivers and things. So you do kind of start thinking about that there's like the scale of um, pollution that comes from the fashion industry from like tiny little fibres to so huge mountains of clothes is is just incredible. Because clothing, um, labels do say they're country
0: of manufacture on them, don't they? But I don't really know what that means. I'm not going to look up the employment laws for every country before I buy an item. I think that's one of the reasons I kind of stopped buying more clothes, partly because I don't need to and partly because to do it responsibly is an awful lot of mental effort.
1: It is. And I think even there's... um the website, i always forget the name of it because you have to pay it's all behind the paywall i think ethical consumer yeah is that the one you think of? yes and i would say arguably like if you really care about people knowing the information like it's crazy that it's behind the paywall again it's it's
2: that whole thing of like recycling can't be done infinitely you know people can't research infinitely
1: for free in an economy they can't so i get what they charge for it but if i'm not going to pay for it and i'm someone who works in the field like who is going to pay for that apart from maybe just like some some specific academics. I don't know. It's just, I get why it's behind a paywall, but it is just questionable that that information arguably should be open access to a lot of people who maybe might learn a bit more about where stuff does come from. So I guess we've spent a bit of time talking about the
2: first two product life stages of sort of resource gathering and the manufacture, which then, you know, gets transported and used by us. Maybe we should talk a bit more about what happens after we've, uh, we've got our jumper and found, for whatever reason, it doesn't fit, it's worn too much or it's just not fashionable. What happens then?
0: That's the end of part one of this two-part episode about how we can think about ways of reducing the amount of waste that we produce. So we've talked about some concepts that are inherent to this idea of a circular economy and we've thought about two of three of the product stages, that's the manufacture and actual use by the user. You'll have to wait another two weeks to listen to the second part of the episode. We talk about what happens in disposal in more detail and also broaden out to talk about different industries and how the circular economy can be applied there. So thank you all for listening so far. Find us on Twitter if you want to ask us any questions. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one. But if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.